Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Wolverine Confidential Podcast. I am Andrew Kahn. And I'm Aaron McMahon. We welcome a Georgia football insider to the show to help preview Michigan's playoff matchup with the Bulldogs. What does Georgia do well? What are its weaknesses? How might the Orange Bowl play out? We've got it all covered on Wolverine Confidential. Okay, well, as I mentioned, we have a guest for this episode, and it's Mike Griffith, who covers Georgia football for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Dog Nation. He's the 2017 College Football Beat Writer of the Year, and he's a familiar name, perhaps, to some of our longtime MLive readers and listeners. Mike, thanks for joining us. Welcome to the show. I appreciate it, guys. Mike, you used to write for MLive. Please tell us a story or two about your days with MLive for some of our listeners that may, may remember your byline. Yeah, you know, it was it was an exciting time. You know, Advanced Digital was, uh, you know, really an MLive was at the front end of a lot of the things that happened with digital journalism. And I was always really proud to be a part of that team. And a lot of the ideas, you know, the people still get to enjoy. I mean, MLive was doing that even before the other advanced companies, you know, very aggressive, very technologically oriented company that really did a nice job of marrying solid journalism to the digital format for those readers that wanted to start getting their news on their phone or on their pad or on their laptop. And, and so it was exciting to be a part of a company that did that And certainly the way we covered Michigan State, along with Michigan, the professional sports teams, you know, really felt like MLive was at the forefront of that. Served me incredibly well in my career. But but beyond that, you know, I got to cover four years of an unbelievable rivalry. I think it's okay if I say that. I know Michigan's kind of partial to Ohio State, but as a Michigan State beat writer, I thought it was a rivalry. And you know, the football games and, you know, the, the you know, he has trouble with the snap. I, I still remember being in the press box that night and there's still a part of me that doesn't believe that the punter threw the ball backwards. I mean, that, that had to be the ultimate, you know, gift from God. I'm just, I'm in the press box, just being completely silent and poor Nick Baumgartner, now the athletic, just realizing that Nick had to rewrite a game story. I, I think I laughed as hard about that as the actual play that, just trying to imagine someone having to rewrite a game story after something that bizarre happened. The great games between Izzo and Beeline. You know, Michigan just seemingly having Izzo's number, even when Michigan State had better teams, you know, those Beeline teams were, were just so incredible. And, you know, the atmosphere in Chrysler and in the big house, it just, to me, was tremendous to cover Big Ten sports. You know, for me, between 2012, 16, watching Ohio State, you know, take down Alabama, really big game for the Big Ten to show everybody, you know, that they could compete with the SEC. And guys, I think we're, I think we're approaching a game where, where uh, mighty Michigan is going to be able to make a statement 
against a pretty celebrated Georgia team here in this Orange Bowl on December 31st. Yeah, let's let's get into it then, because uh, back then Michigan wasn't you know competing for national championships. They were never they were never in the playoff until now. And they, they are here now to play in one semifinal uh, against Georgia in the Orange Bowl on December 31st. Let's start with the quarterback situation for Georgia, because I've been talking to a lot of Michigan fans since this matchup was announced. And a lot of them feel like Georgia seems to have two quarterbacks, but neither one of them are great. That might be not entirely true. But can you kind of take us through the, the season long progression of Stetson Bennett and JT Daniels? Yeah, there's some drama there, obviously. You know, JT uh, actually went and visited Michigan and spent a few hours. What was the guy's name? Pip, the former offensive coordinator. What was that guy's name there? Pep Hamilton. Pep. Yeah, he spent a few hours there on the campus with him when he was in the uh, portal before he chose Georgia. He also nearly went to Michigan State. I mean, JT Daniels could easily be a Wolverine or a Spartan right now, but he chose Georgia. And last year, he was coming off a knee injury. Uh, that he sustained in the first half of the first game at USC, what would have been his sophomore year. Uh, he didn't play until the final four games of the season. He just lit it up. Had over 400 yards passing in his, uh, his first game back in over a year and a half and beat a really good Cincinnati team in the Peach Bowl, come from behind, down double digits in the fourth quarter, last-minute drive, no timeouts, and returned as the nation's leading returning passer from a pass rating standpoint uh, from the time he stepped on the field. So there was, he was the Heisman Trophy favorite when we left SEC media days in Birmingham in July, JT Daniels had assumed a Heisman Trophy favorite status. So there was a lot of uh, big plans and big thoughts for what Georgia football might do, you know, revolutionizing this offense a little bit, going with this pro style air raid bread that Todd Munkin became known for in the NFL when he was the offensive coordinator for the Tampa Bay Bucks. And, you know, that was kind of how it looked like Georgia was going to be. Well, a couple things happened. George Pickens, who's now back, uh, suffered an injury in the spring. Another receiver named Dominic Blaylock didn't get over the knee injury he had suffered in the 2019 SEC championship game. Long story short, they didn't have the receivers they thought they were going to have, and JT got hurt in the preseason. So it was an injured JT Daniels that started the year against Clemson in the top five showdown. Defensive struggle. Clemson did a nice job. Georgia didn't have experienced receivers. There wasn't much JT could do, but try to get rid of the ball quickly against a pretty good Clemson front. And they won that game. He missed the next week and, and Stetson uh, debuted. Now Stetson is an interesting story that, you know, he's a former walk-on who left Georgia after a year, played a year at junior college, came back in 2018 to be the backup for Jake Fromm. Uh, they needed a backup quarterback because Justin Fields decided to transfer to Ohio State. So Bennett was their insurance policy coming back, and that's why he was put on scholarship second time around. He was the fourth-string quarterback going into the 2020 season. But again, injuries. We talked about JT Daniels, the knee injury coming from USC, wasn't ready for the opener. Jamie Newman, you may remember, high-profile transfer from Wake Forest, never played it down. He was out of here before he played a snap. JT was beating him out in fall drills. So Newman opted out to work out. And then the number three guy was a guy you should be familiar with by the name of Dwan Mathis from Oak Park, Michigan, uh, who was originally an Ohio State commitment until Ohio State jumped fields. And when they jumped fields, Dwan switched to Georgia on the early signing day. And Dwan was actually the starter for the 2020 season. People are going to have to write this down to keep up with it. So when Dwan, Dwan failed out, Stetson went in and Stetson became the guy last year for the first six games of the season and went four and two. The difference in the guys, so Michigan people, okay, this is great. You're writing a book. You're going to tell us what's going to happen. 
okay, well, Stetson Bennett is going to be the guy. He's going to be the starter. And when they run Stetson Bennett, he has a little bit of mobility. For your old timers, think about Danny Enos back in the Spartan days. He's got a little bit of mobility. He's got enough of an arm to beat you, but he's not going to be an NFL draft pick. He's not going to be invited to the Senior Bowl. He's about 5'10", but he's crafty. He can scramble. He can throw it somewhat accurately. Not real, but the mobility makes him a headache because he can. he's kind of squirrely back there. He can get loose on you. He can run for a first down. He can extend plays. When you see Stetson Bennett on the field, you'll probably see three tight ends. And that's what they're going to do. They're going to pound, pound, pound with three tight ends. But they got two tight ends that might be on your fantasy football team in the next two or three years. One of them is Brock Bowers, who broke every record in the program for tight ends and uh, is, is an All-American candidate. I mean, this guy is George Kittle Jr., okay? When I give you these measurements, I'm not telling you this as a recruiting writer. I'm telling you this is a veteran scribe who does not exaggerate, okay? He is 6'4", he is 230, he does run a 4'5", he does have a 40-inch vertical, and he's got great hands. I mean, the guy is unbelievable. I have never seen, he's really not a tight end. He's really more of an H-back in truth, but he'll line up in that tight end spot. Alabama used a nickel to cover him. Your linebackers aren't going to be able to stick with this guy. I guarantee you he's a headache for Michigan right now. They got to figure something out for this tight end, Brock Bowers. The other tight end is another freak. Again, no exaggerations here, guys. This guy is 6'7". He's 275. He's got hands like glue. He's not going to separate, but he's got such a big body that it's going to be really hard to match up with Darnell Washington. You can look him up. He was a five-star coming out of Vegas two years ago. Beginning of the year, he was slowed by a foot injury, so he missed the first four games, but he's been coming on. And then the third guy is a fourth-year junior by the name of John Fitzpatrick. Now, John isn't going to wow you after the catch. He's more your prototypical tight end. He's about 6'6", 250, 255. You know, Washington and John can block you, but they can also catch the ball when they're open. John is not as much of a threat as Darnell is. And then we mentioned George Pickens. Somewhere he's out there on the perimeter. This guy has Randy Moss-like skills. I mean, he can bend, he can leap, he come down with a 50-50 ball. A couple of years ago, he played in the Cotton Bowl. Uh, I think Matt Rule was too busy looking at his new contract with the Panthers because George caught 11 passes in the first half. Ended up with 12 catches for 165 yards on a record-setting Baylor defense. So this guy is legit. He's back from a knee in March. This will be his third game back. He's got hands like glue. You can't single this guy. Don't even think about it. You better put a safety over the top. So they've got a lot of different weapons coming out of a very physical set. And like Michigan, if Kirby could run it 50 times and throw it 11, he'll do that. So this game has the look of a, a bit of a smash mouth affair with some big plays over the top because obviously the Wolverines leading the nation in plays over 50, 60, and 70 yards. Sounds a lot like Michigan, and you mentioned this, Griff. It's kind of what Michigan wants to do, play smash-mouth football, run the ball in between the tackles, and, and win the tight ends in, in power. It's, it's This is going to be a fascinating matchup. Like you said, I think you got two, te- you got two like-minded coaches that like to play the same way, and it, it's going to be fascinating. The one area, I think, of Georgia everyone has heard, whether you've watched their games or not this year, has been the run defense. I mean, they're third in the country in yards allowed per game, 81.7. There have been only four games this year where they, where they have allowed more than 100 yards on the ground, just one over 150. What makes this front seven 
from from Georgia's defense so, so effective? Well, two things. You know, one is talent. Two is the discipline, the gap discipline. Okay, so let's start with the talent. You know, you've got two guys that are potential first round picks. Jordan Davis is the guy you hear and see a lot about. You know, he's six six three, anywhere from three forty five to three sixty, depending on his diet that month. I mean, he's a space eater. You're not moving between the guards. There's nothing that's going to happen there. He's going to occupy two blockers. You know, he's dominant. Now, if you can spread it, which I don't know that Michigan will get that radical, but what Alabama did to neutralize was they spread the field and and got those guys up front going sideline to sideline, and then they gashed him. But I don't think we're going to see Michigan do that. I think this is going to be a strength on strength, you know, based on what I've seen out of Michigan. You guys might know some secrets I don't. I'm sure Jim's letting everybody into practice to see what they're doing. <laughs> but Jordan Davis, is a, he's, he's, a, he's a monster, right? He was the Outland Trophy winner. He was the Benaric winner. He's only the third player in history to win the Outland and the Benaric. He joins Aaron Donald and Indomitian Sioux. So he's in pretty rarefied air with winning those awards. He's not a guy that's going to play every snap. He's probably going to play the first two downs when you get into pass, pass rush situations. They've got incredible depth there. they got another guy named Devontae Wyatt, uh, really fast off the snap, you know, 6'4", 305 more of your conventional uh, D-tackle in there. And then they got a sophomore by the name of Jalen Carter, who's the most athletic, you know, probably the most physically gifted, might ultimately be the best uh, NFL player. So they've got three bona fide NFL starters. You know, all, all these guys would could play on Sundays right now uh, at the interior defensive line positions. Now you get on the perimeter, they got a really athletic end by the name of Trayvon Walker. He's about 6'4", 285. We knew he was special when they put him on the kickoff team as a freshman which is pretty crazy for a guy that's that big that can run like that. But you're going to see some tremendous athleticism there at that end position at the other end, which is really their outside linebacker. It's a guy by the name of Nolan Smith. And Nolan, he goes about 6'3", 235, a little undersized for that spot. A couple of years ago, he was the number one recruit in the nation coming out of high school for all those people that like five stars. And follow that. They may remember him out of IMG. He's a drop-off from what they had there last year. What they had there last year was Aziz Ajilari. He's, uh, I think he's setting rookie records for the Giants with sacks. But this guy, Nolan, is good, okay? He can get to your quarterback. He can play make. He can turn a game. Uh, he had the interception and a forced fumble against Florida. Uh, that was a 3-0 to zero game with about three minutes left in the first half. And the Georgia defense forced three turnovers in the last two and a half minutes that led directly to 21 points. So their defense can make plays like that. And I know that Michigan's very good at not making these mistakes. And you can bet they'll be guarded because Nolan Smith is one of those playmakers. Now, when I talk about gap integrity, everybody talks about it. It's like everybody's saying they got good leadership, right? There's different degrees of it. And there's a different amount of conviction that a coach will put into it. Well, Georgia stays assignment sound. Like I can count on one hand in the last four years the number of times I've seen a broken defense and, and a guy just come up the middle with a gap uncovered or a guy with a broken coverage in the second. It just doesn't happen. Now, a couple of those times in the secondary happened last week. That's the good news is there's some food available for McNamara in the secondary if, if his protection holds up and if he can get enough of a ground game to get the play action going. But it's going to be really, really hard for Michigan to move the ball on the ground. You don't have to have a lot of success, but you got to have just enough success to maybe discourage Georgia from blitzing. They don't like to blitz. They typically are able to get pressure with a four-man rush. You know, they'll do some zone blitz stuff and some twists and, and stunts. You'll see them shift right before the snap, do some things to confuse the line. I think this is a pretty veteran Michigan line, though. 
So to me, it's going to be a lot of mano and mano strength on strength kind of thing. But make no mistake about it, this will be the best defensive front that Michigan's seen in a long time, probably since they played Alabama. What was that, 2015, 2014, something like that? Yeah. And then it'll probably be, I mean, the flip side is that, you know, for Georgia, it just it could be the, you know, one of the strongest rushing attacks and then offensive lines that they'll, they'll have faced um, this season as well. So that's what makes that so intriguing as far as, okay, if we kind of just go big picture here a little bit, some of this, I feel like is revisionist history after Georgia gets, you know, kind of dominated in the sec championship game. But if you look back at the regular season schedule, they were the worthy number one, most of the year, but you know, the win over Clemson, that wasn't a Clemson team that we're used to, especially at that point in the year. They got better as the year went on. And then in the SEC, you know, they didn't they didn't have to face Ole Miss on the other side. Arkansas, Auburn, Kentucky, Florida, like all all good wins, and and they weren't competitive. So that's a, a feather in Georgia's cap. But I don't know. I don't want to. Definitely not saying twelve and zero is a mirage, but. Maybe there were some weaknesses there that even before the Alabama game, but you can obviously speak to this better as far as, um, you know, Georgia's regular season performance. Well, I mean, you, you said a mouthful and, and you're right, you know, in hindsight's 2020, but, but the key is the weakness in the secondary was always there. It's just who could expose it because the front seven was so dominant because you couldn't get the run game going because the pass rush was in your quarterback's face. Who could find the time? to hit the plays downfield. You mentioned Clemson and DJ Ugalele. Well, DJ obviously had struggles all year. The Clemson defense was every bit as good as any of their championship defenses. But offensively, you know, they were limited. The reason Alabama was able to exploit the secondary was because they had a mobile quarterback and they had some dynamic receivers on the perimeter that was able to get into the secondary and, and beat and beat their guys and get loose. The question for Michigan is, can their quarterback buy enough time to exploit the secondary or establish the run to the extent that play action would be effective. And does Michigan have those dynamic receivers on the perimeter? Cause you're, you're not going to beat Georgia with intermediate throws or the run game. You've got to get to those secondary. You got to get into the secondary and expose them. And that comes at a cost. Yeah. You might hit four or five, but your quarterback's going to get hit a lot or you're going to be putting him at risk. And, and to me, that's where the chess match is at. You know, Alabama had an offense with, Bryce Young that was essentially built, you know, to play spread air raid concept football and, you know, air it out, right? Basketball on grass. That's not how Michigan's built. We have not seen a conventional offense farewell against Georgia this season. I'm not saying that Michigan can't because I do think Michigan, you know, I would probably say Florida is probably the best run game uh, that they face, but Florida had a running quarterback. Michigan doesn't. And not having a running quarterback, at least I don't think that that's McNamara's strength. You know, may, yeah. every dog has their day. But that running quarterback is what's really enabled some teams to move the ball on Georgia. If you go back and look at the teams that had success running, they had mobile quarterbacks. Michigan doesn't have that. We haven't seen a team just line up and play conventional football. I suppose I could go back to 2019 Notre Dame. Brian Kelly brought a team down to Sanford Stadium with Ian Book and Cole Komet that had some success. They didn't win, but they played them pretty even in Sanford Stadium. That defense wasn't as good as this defense, but that offense was better. So I I think it can happen. But uh, as far as taking apart their wins, you know, I contend that so much of when how teams do isn't just who you play, but when you play them, where they're at. You know, Georgia, since October, I guess really since the Florida game was the last game, they lost their sacks leader. 
You know, they had a first round NFL draft pick and Adam Anderson and, you know, he's suspended. He's been gone. So they're not the same Georgia in that sense. They had an All-American transfer in from West Virginia. Never really got off the ground. Tyke Smith, you know, he played a couple of games, but wasn't really a four. Georgia's really not at its best. I'm not I'm not making excuses. I'm just telling you that what the version of Georgia that I saw against Alabama was far from its best version. I think part of that, you know, was that Georgia finished the year with a couple of cream puffs in Charleston Southern and Georgia Tech. And I really kind of feel like they got out of rhythm. And, and kind of lost their sense of urgency. You know, Alabama had played three consecutive games within a score, including a game I covered in the Iron Bowl where they didn't even score till the fourth quarter. You know, and yet they had 31 at the end of three quarters against Georgia. You might say, well, how in the world does that happen? Well, a couple things. Auburn had the sort of corners that could play press man on the perimeter and get after Bryce Young, one, two. Playing indoors is a lot different than playing outside for a lot of these spread teams. I guarantee Ohio State wishes that they would have played Michigan in September when it was 75 or 80 degrees. So conditions, when you play teams, how they're playing, you know, it's interesting to me. This is a game that in a warm weather climate, but, you know, will it be wet? I don't know if anybody's gone far. You know, is this going to be a sloshy in the rain? Is it going to be perfect 75, 80 with grass cut short? And we're going to watch these teams pound it out on turf. I guarantee you Michigan prefers that it's going to be a grass game. I think Georgia would have preferred for it to be inside. But getting back to your point, uh, I think you're catching Georgia at a good time. The question that that I have and that I think could ultimately determine the game is can Michigan exploit the second? Can they run the ball effectively enough to get the play-action game going? And do they have the speed and the dynamic playmakers on the perimeter to exploit Georgia's weakness, which is in the secondary? Mike, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because that's the area where I, I think Michigan falls f- short here. You know, they obviously like to dominate the line of scrimmage and and play the short to intermediate pass game, but they don't do very well when they throw the ball deep. They haven't had to do it a ton this year, and they have done it at times, but they haven't had to rely on it for a full game uh, against a, like a top-level opponent. So that's where I, I think Michigan could struggle. You know, they, they don't have that top receiver that can go to your, every drive for a big play. Now, they've had... Instances where guys have stepped up and come up big, but it, it hasn't been consistent, and that's where I, I think it's you know it's going to be interesting. You know, take us back to that SEC title game against Alabama. They gave up. You mentioned four passing yards. Stetson threw two interceptions. Is that the key? Basically, you mentioned exploiting the passing or the passing defense, but forcing turnovers. Is that is that kind of how you beat Georgia? Well, that's one of the ways. You know, that game was ten to zero Georgia after one quarter. I mean, think about that. And, you know, they go into the second quarter, it's 10-0. Now, Michigan, you know, excuse me, Alabama scores on the first play of the second quarter. And then Georgia had a couple of three and outs. And Bryce Young got into a rhythm and they scored on, they scored touchdowns on four consecutive, excuse me, they scored points on, uh, let's see, 24, I'm trying to think it was 10-0. So they scored touchdowns on four consecutive drives, right? Or four out of five. They scored on five straight drives because they scored a touchdown on the first drive of the second half as well. And then after that, that was it. They had to pick six on defense. But to your point, the way to beat Georgia is to get ahead, right? You got to make them play from behind. Stetson is not a guy. I don't know that he's ever you know come from more than double digits down. I know they trailed Auburn. They trailed Missouri three to zero in the first quarter, converted a fourth down pass, led that seven to three. They trailed Tennessee 10-7 to after one quarter, but Tennessee is a, is a spread team, and they trailed Auburn 3-0 to for a little bit. But other than that, during the regular season, they weren't behind. I think they trailed a total of 20 minutes during the regular season. So the Alabama game was, was a new scenario. 
And again, a, a dynamic team. I mean, it's just, you know, I guess, I guess Ohio State would probably be a good comparison. I think Bryce might have a little bit more mobility uh, than Stroud, probably more talent too. I'm um, not sure, you know, rec- receivers wise, Ohio State's pretty dynamic. But yeah, no, I, I think the challenge for Michigan is going to be the shot plays. They're going to have to hit some big plays because I just, I, you're just not going to grind Georgia's front seven. I, I don't see that. I, Again, I'm trying to think of the last time somebody just lined up. And, you know, when I think back to the Georgia losses, you know, this last, you know, obviously they lost to Alabama was a spread team. You know, last year they lost to, you know, Kyle Trask, Florida team that, you know, aired it out, you know, had ran, it was had some success with some wheel routes out of the backfield, but a lot of passing, a big flurry in the second quarter. Alabama came from behind and beat them with, Jalen Waddell and Devontae Smith and Najee Harris, no offense to Michigan, but I, I don't see those kind of skill players there. Going back to 2019, they got upset at home against South Carolina and missed a field goal, had three interceptions, hadn't had an interception in the first seven games of the year, kind of pooped the bed in that game right there with Muschamp, uh, who's now on staff, pretty good defensive mind, trying to think who else they lost to. You know, it's it's been a minute since I've seen them lose to a team that's just pound. I guess Texas. Maybe the Texas Cotton Bowl uh, after the 2018 season, pretty despondent Georgia team. Felt like they got screwed out of the playoff when Oklahoma got put in ahead of them. And Tom Herman and and Texas uh, went to town on them. So it has happened. But that wasn't a college football playoff situation. Georgia had about half a dozen guys opted out. So the way Kirby's built, you know, like we've talked about, a lot of similarities. I mean, it's, it's a lot of power on power. Now, now I'll say this, and you know we're we're checking all the boxes, and we're telling everybody about all the X's and the O's that they could possibly want. But this is a big intangibles game to me. This is a big intangibles game, and I know it sounds hokey. And us beat writers, guys, we try to avoid it. We try to avoid saying, "Well, the fans really made a difference." The fans want to hear that every game. Guess what? You don't. It really, it rarely happens. But Michigan has kind of caught lightning in a bottle. I mean, you finally, finally beat Ohio State. You finally get to the Big Ten title game. Destroy a horrible Iowa team. Ah, you lost to Michigan State, but that's okay. We've talked about that. That happens more, more times than not these days. But now you've got a national championship in your sights, and you've got a Georgia team that if you put this into a comparison like a boxing match, they kind of got staggered at the end of the last round. Kirby's putting the mouthpiece back in, asking the guy, you okay, you good? Yeah, 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 I'm good, I'm good. But is he really good? Is Georgia really good after that Alabama game? Do they really have their footing back underneath them? Or are there questions within the team? Do they start to first time doubt one another? You guys mentioned a lot of the wins. And, you know, we can kind of put coals in them and go, well, maybe Auburn wasn't as good as we thought they were. Well, Arkansas wasn't what we thought at the time. They were top 10 then. They're really not top 10 now. Kentucky was 11 then. They're really never 11 in anything but basketball. So you wonder, where is Georgia at mentally? Versus Michigan, which I'm having flashbacks to, you know, Tom Brady and the Orange Bowl over Alabama and Lloyd Carr's 97 team. I mean, this Michigan looks like the Michigan that I grew up hearing about in Mason. Like, this is what we thought Michigan was supposed to be, but really hasn't been really since the start of the millennium when Brady beat Alabama in the Orange Bowl. It's very funny. I mean, we might not remember this by the time December 31st comes around because their last games were so long ago. But like you said, Georgia's kind of stumbling here and Michigan's playing as well as anybody in the country and as well as they have all season. I mean, you can say what you want about Iowa. Michigan still dominated that game 
and Ohio State, I mean, I think is still viewed as a elite team and, and Michigan, you know, crushed them too. So, you know, after some stumbles earlier in the year and some uncertainty on offense, they found their identity. Now, you know, you talked about Michigan's kind of big plays, how they how they lead the country in them, but they have a good chunk of those being on the ground, more so than other teams. You know, about half of their 50-yard plays or 60-yard plays are running plays, which you figure might not really be available against Georgia. And then even some of the, the passing plays are kind of trick plays almost set up by the threat of the run. So that, that's the blueprint for Michigan, right, is to try to to try to do that. Like you said, run the ball, set up play action. As far as the mobile quarterbacks, Cade McNamara, good pocket presence, mobile, but not really a, a running threat. The backup quarterback is, though, J.J. McCarthy. You know, how much the freshman will play on such a big stage uh, remains to be seen, though. Yeah, you just get the feeling this is the kind of game where, you know, there's going to be four or five plays where where somebody's band's going to play and, you know, who, whose band is going to be is going to be playing last and, and whose band's going to be playing most. But, you know, it's intriguing that, you know, we, we talked a little bit about, you know, Harbaugh and, and how well scouted he'll have Georgia. But having that plan B and having that mobile quarterback, a lot of the teams that have given Georgia trouble, as we mentioned, had mobile quarterbacks. Conversely, you know, Georgia's plan B is JT Daniels. And we mentioned him at the start. But you, you see JT go in there, and all of a sudden, you know, Georgia could go four or five wide and, and run those air raid concepts and, and look a lot different. And you almost wonder, guys, you know, if, if these teams' plan Bs might be more effective than their plan A's based on the matchups and the teams that have found success against them in the past. Yeah, it should be a, a, a very fun game. I mean, I, I see Georgia's, you know, a touchdown favorite, eight-point favorite, but I don't know, talking to you and, and talking to some other people, it kind of seems like maybe... That's just kind of not a bias, but a reaction to just the SEC strength, especially in the playoff, and maybe not a true measure of how competitive this game can be. Mike, thank you so much for for your insight. I mean, I feel like we could have gone up and down the line every every darn positional matchup in this game, and you would have had you know useful nuggets to provide. So thanks for coming on and, and talking about this game with us. Yeah, enjoy. I look forward to seeing you guys down there in Florida, man. We'll we'll do more. We'll do more breakdowns. Sounds good. Thanks, Mike. 